This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Shalom and welcome to Asia Torah here in the old city of Jerusalem overlooking the Temple Mount. This class is called Practical Spirituality. And what we're doing now is we're going through the Kabbalistic worlds. And what is that supposed to mean? It's answering the question, how does light energy become matter? How does light energy become matter? If you know anything about physics, there's light energy and there's matter. This is the world of matter, and it's coming from light energy. Physics keeps it theoretical. They don't know how, but they have theory how light becomes matter. Whereas in Kabbalah, we have not theory, but rather we have an actual tradition for thousands of years that comes down. And what is that tradition? That there are actual parallel universes. Did I say parallel universes? Sorry, parallel worlds that actually obscure the light to create the image, just like if I obscure the light, if I obscure the light on this board, so it creates an image. You see that? When you obscure light, it creates image. So too, the obscuring of God's infinite light, it creates image. And how does it do that? It does it via worlds. Now, those worlds are... Our, our parallel worlds maybe be easier to understand from our world because one of the things that uh, one of the punishments it's a pretty nasty punishment but one of the punishments that someone could get none of you will get it but a punishment someone could get is called kafakela kafakela means that that when you die you go up one parallel world from ours well if it's only one level up it looks exactly like this world because think about it in the high realms things are super ethereal. Whereas the low realms of all those parallel worlds that are filtering the light, it's going to start looking more and more like this world. Well, the bottom level worlds look exactly like this world. In fact, they are this world just one step removed. Now, they see us, we don't see them. So if they get that punishment, they're stuck here forever. And they are... They are able to see us, but they can't interact with us. We don't see them. They see us, we don't see them. And they're just stuck here forever and ever and ever. They just stay that age and they're just stuck here. And they, they don't need food or water because they're already, meaning they've already been buried. Their, their physical body's dead, but their soul now is lingering around this world. It kind of floats around the planet. Generally, they, the Kabbalists teach us that, the, that those souls that are stuck in the Kafakela like to hang around uh, crowded public places. So if you find yourself drawn to the Machane Yehuda Shuk outdoor market over there in Jaffa Street, anyone feel drawn there? Some people feel drawn there. Anyone here feel drawn there? Nobody feels drawn there? You do? I don't feel like she felt drawn there. I was thinking you would be the one who feels drawn there. You feel drawn there? Oh, you used to get pulled in there? Into the black hole? Daytime or nighttime? I mean, since the nightlife started? Because there was no such thing as nightlife in the Shuka until the last five years, probably. Oh, that's a whole other thing. No, I'm talking about daytime. I'm talking about smoking weed and drinking beer. I'm talking about fruits and vegetables everywhere, and you're feeling like you've got to go be there. What's that? You had this? Yeah, only when there's a silver fish and chips, though. That's a little different, too. Anyway... I remember seeing this guy way in the distance walking down the street with a big backpack on. He's like glowing. He's shining like you can see him from far away. And he finally comes up. He was a student in this class. And I see him. I said, what's up? He says, well, I just finished the bar exam yesterday. And I'm like, in New York? He's like, yeah. What are you doing here? He says, I just had to get back to the Shook. (laughs) I'm like, well, how long have you been in Israel? He's like, "I, I landed an hour and a half ago, maybe. And I came to the Shook. Now I'm in the Shook. Like, most people go to the Kotel first. He's like, I go to the Shook. <laughs> he wasn't going to buy anything. He was just needs to be around the Shook. So I have that same thing. I need to be around the Shook. So I've always lived within, like, 100 yards of the Shook for the last 24 years. And anyway, but they're all in there. And now there are a couple ways out of the Kafakela. One is to possess an unconscious body. And therefore, if you have a friend who happens to be unconscious, never leave them alone. Because the only way to prevent a possession of someone... Uh, uh, passing over back into our world to, in order to die and then go out of here. Because you can actually 
um, get out of the kafukela through the through a, an unconscious or dead body. But there's a way to prevent that. And the way you prevent it is by always guarding the unconscious or dead person. So we have a tradition in Judaism that if anyone's ever unconscious or dead, we always have we always have a living person uh, with them in the room. Anyone here ever guarded a dead body? Just me? I've guarded a dead body. I once left by accident my 10-year-old son guarding a dead body, his oldest brother. He said it was the scariest thing that ever happened to him in his life. It wasn't so much the dead guy was so scary. He wasn't happy about that either. But I had to go. And you can't leave the dead body alone because people jump in from the kafakela. So I had to go. He was with me anyway, so I just left him alone for like a few minutes. So, but then I got sidetracked. Just kidding. I didn't get sidetracked. What happened was the daughter of the guy who died walked in right behind my son. He didn't hear her walk in. And when she sees the, you know, the body covered on, the, on his bed, it was a tiny little one-room place, she screams, shrieking at the top of her lungs. Now, my son's 10 years old. He's, his job's to protect the dead body. And all of a sudden, Rah! and he jumped out of his skin. He said it was the scariest moment of his life. But it wasn't so much the dead body, it was the daughter behind him. Anyway, but you want to be careful of unconscious people to make sure there's always someone with them. Yeah? Just sleeping count? Mm-mm. No, no, it'd be more like uh, medically unconscious, not, not sleeping. Sleeping, you, there's no such thing as getting a, getting a soul to jump in your body while you're sleeping. Okay, so what if you're unconscious, someone jumps in your body, how do you get it out, and how do you know if it's even there? How do you get out? An exorcism. Yeah, it ain't pretty. We had one very public uh, possession happen here in Beersheba about, about 25 years ago. And... Uh, it was very public. The exorcism was extremely public. And it was a woman with her ex-husband's voice talking through her, trying to kill her. And, uh, and uh, <laughs> anyway, it was all like thing. It was televised. It was like on national television, the whole exorcism. But uh, she didn't survive the exorcism, unfortunately. We lost her. But, uh, but they did get the body. They got the husband out of her, which was good. Yeah. They at least they got the husband out. She got back to her regular voice, but then she, she didn't make it. What's the, what's the, um, how do you exercise someone else? <laughs> you, uh, you call Rabbi Batsri. <laughs> no, like, he was in charge. I don't know. I don't know what they do to get, I don't know what they do. It's nothing like Gentiles would do. It's, I don't know what Gentiles do for exorcism. Are these like the spirits that you're able to Oh, those ones. No, no, no. That's summoning summoning the regular dead. That's forbidden. Yeah, Ouija boards are majorly forbidden. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You want to stay away from Ouija boards. If it's too late and you already used a Ouija board, you know, if it's too late, then please God, you'll be protected from any harm. Um, But but in the future, it's ill-advised and you should advise others to not mess around with it never mess with the souls of the dead it's real yeah Ouija boards are real so you gotta be careful with Ouija boards and um, we have a commandment in the Torah not to summon the dead now there are kosher ways of summoning the dead like what like a a dream quest someone who passed away you're allowed to do certain things you gotta go to a certain amount of mikvahs and you gotta (laughs) use certain names of God I don't know what they are and um and then you, I think you write something that you want to ask, and then you put it under your pillow, and then you go to sleep. And then you get, you get to actually have a full, uh, uh, a full, uh, what's the fancy word for? Conversation. <laughs> that was not the fancy word, but you get to. Wait, so you write, you get, write something on a note, and you put it on your pillow, and have that type of dream? And then you dream into that person's soul. And you get to talk to them and ask them questions. But it's usually only done by like super heavy duty dudes. Like, meaning if you needed a dream quest, you would go to a rabbi who can do dream quests. I don't know any rabbis alive who can do dream quests anymore. Um, there was uh, Rabbi Foyle Levine, who was a close friend of mine. He got to do, he was still someone with the tradition of dream quests. He was a great tzaddik of Jerusalem. And... Uh, 
I actually verified, verified the story with him. He, he, when he got really old, he would be escorted places, so I got to escort him to a, a bris, to a circumcision, and I, I checked the story with him. It's an amazing story. You want to hear a good dream quest story? So there was a, there was a guy who, uh, a, a cab driver from uh, southern Jerusalem, uh, what's that place called over there? Gilo. Who, who, was, who had gotten very ill, mysteriously ill, to the point where he couldn't walk. And he was like, his organs were starting to shut down. It was a big deal. So he was dying, and the doctors were like, we don't know what's going on with you, because nothing was panning out as far as scans and blood tests. They couldn't figure it out. Anyway, but the guy's whole body shutting down. So they finally, uh, they went to this rabbi, and this rabbi, and that rabbi. They finally brought him to... Reb, uh, Raphael Levine, when he was really going to die, they had to carry him in. He couldn't. He was no longer able to walk. And they asked Reb Raphael Levine if he would do a dream quest. And Reb Raphael Levine... Oh, no, no. He knew another thing. Sorry, I don't know if he knew how to do a dream quest. He knew how to do what's called the Goral Hagra. Goral Hagra is... Um, it takes a high-level Kabbalist to do that. you got to know a lot of Kabbalah, and it's like heavy-duty, and it's... Most rabbis aren't willing to mess with it. But if you know how to do it, and you do everything right, including mikvah and God's names and stuff, you actually, they can open the Torah and point to the page, and it tells you the answer. You can actually just flip through the Torah, point to the page, and it will tell you the answer. So what was it? He points to the page, and it says that, that it, it was the story of... of Moses' sister Miriam speaking against Moses. She spoke Lashon Hara about Moses. And Moses, and she got afflicted with Saras, with a skin affliction, for having spoken against the leader of Israel, her brother Moses. And, and so what happened was Rabbi Levine, Rabbi Fuhrer Levine, said to, to this cab driver, he said, did you speak again? You must have spoken Lashon Hara, meaning bad speech, about someone named Moses. Did you speak about someone named Moses? So Moshe. So he was thinking, he's like, I don't think so. He's thinking, he's thinking, he's thinking. Like, yeah. He went down his phone list, everyone named Moshe. He called him and said, if I spoke against you, I apologize. You know, but he, he tried everything he could. But in the end, after every Moshe he could possibly think of for days, after calling every Moshe in the phone book, he, uh, he gave up because he couldn't figure it out. And he... He just was continually dying, like he was literally dying. And, and like right before he died, the night before he died, he couldn't even sleep because he's just, which Moshe did I speak Lush and her? Anyway, his wife's asleep, he's asleep in his bedroom, and all of a sudden at like three in the morning, he screams, I've got it! And she jumps out of her bedroom, you got what? And he's like, I know which Moshe. And she's like, which Moshe? He says, I picked up somebody at the Ramada Renaissance in my cab. And I was driving him to the Hyatt in Mount Scopus. This is before, you know, now there's a train on Jaffa Street. So there didn't used to be a train. That was buses and taxis. And so we were climbing up Jaffa by the central bus station. But there was a terrible traffic jam for the funeral of Rab Moshe Feinstein, the greatest rabbi of the entire generation from New York. His funeral was in Israel. And the, the, the whole place was a standstill because it's a walking procession, meaning they stopped traffic completely. They blocked the streets for the, no cars, meaning that wherever you were parked, wherever you were driving became where you were parked. And he said in his car, couldn't they have done the, the, couldn't they have done the procession on another street? I mean, Jaffa was the artery of Jerusalem. In those days, that's how you got in and out. That was it. And everyone's still shocked that they're sending cars up. But saw up uh, Agrippas, but they, like that was how you drove, and Agrippas was one way, and it was not a it was not a well used street. So he said, like, couldn't they have done it like anywhere but the artery of Jerusalem, any other street in Jerusalem? So anyway, at dawn they call his brothers. His brothers put him in a car. They carry him into or wheeled him into Rabbi Foyle Levine, who gets up at dawn. And they said to him that they think they know what happened. He spoke about the, the Gadol Hadar, the great of the generation, complaining about his funeral being on Jaffa Street. And Rabbi Foyle said, that's probably it. Because so, you, you don't want to mess with 
like the leaders of the generation are not the ones you want to be speaking about. You know, it's like, you don't want to speak about anybody, but certainly not the leader of the generation. So anyway, and he wasn't even speaking about him. That's how sensitive it is. Meaning he was speaking about the, the choice of the funeral procession street. That's how careful we got to be. Anyway, he said, bring him with 10 men to Harmanuchos, the, fun- the cemetery. And he should, you know, carry him into the cemetery and have him ask forgiveness in front of 10 men. And so they brought him out to the cemetery and he asked forgiveness in front of the 10 men at the grave of Rabbi Moshe Feinstein. And he, he was fine after that. The story says that he walked out of there, but I can't verify that. But, they, but the story was that he, he literally walked back to the car, like his body came back to life. But he lived. He could still be alive, actually. And uh, anyway, I verified that story with Rupert Foyle Levine himself in the car with him. So like, that's, a, that's the real deal. Um, anyway, Kafakela is this parallel world. Well, there's lots of parallel worlds, and, and the parallel worlds are where we go when we die. Now, I'm obviously blessing everybody never to have to go to the Kafakela. You don't want to be stuck there. And, and the key way, by the way, just to avoid the kafakela is, the key way into the kafakela is suicide. Suicide, because you have full free will in your life. You get to do whatever you want in your life. Meaning you can literally choose anything, as we know. We get to hear about terrible choices people make. You know, like, you know, violent people and stuff making really bad choices. Um, but you get to make even terrible choices. The one choice you're not allowed to make is when you leave the video game called life. Meaning you have, to, you have to sit it out. Like you can't end your life early. And I sometimes am nervous about people who like smoke cigarettes and, uh, or you know, eat bad foods or overeat and stuff or don't exercise enough. Because I'm just wondering if they're also a little bit busted because for, for, those things do end life earlier. So it's kind of like suicide on the installment plan. But... So I wonder about that. Now, I'm also I'm an extremely healthy eater and a very avid exerciser. And in fact, we're, our ace yoga class is today at 5.15. Um, and we have a group of rabbis that do yoga together. Anyone can come, except for, unless you're female, of course. We don't do co-ed yoga, sorry. Um, anyway, but thank God in Israel, yoga, not in Israel, sorry, in Jerusalem, yoga is kosher. So we do, uh, you know, very kosher all rabbis, and it ends with Mesila Shasharim. Yeah. All the rabbis, like, get dressed again and, and learn Mesila Shasharim. Anyway, but it's, it's definitely an amazing group of, group of uh, men. We've been working together for many years. Um, yeah, so the one thing you're not allowed to do is end your life early, you have to stick it out no matter how bad it is. You've got to stick it out. And what's the punishment for one ending their life early? Is it never ends. Meaning, at least if you end your life when it ends, you go on. You move on. You did it. You're done. You did this, this round. We have many rounds, but you're finished your round. 340? Tunnel tour. Tunnel tour. He's gone. Uh, someone else is gone? Okay, there are other people going. They're out there, right? Uh, five fifteen. You took my WhatsApp. Send me a WhatsApp. I'll send you that. I forget how much it costs. It costs something. We pay monthly. All right. Um, anyway, the the. Uh, you have, to, you have to see out the end of your life. You can't leave early. No leaving early. You can leave class early to go to the tunnel tour. You can't leave life early. I can make class on the recording night. Yeah. There, a, the other way out of the Kafakela, by the way, is there are, I don't know if there are any more, but there used to be, if you can close the door, it'd be great. There, are, there were once Kabbalists who knew how to get people out. And the, there was even a story in Europe of one of the great rebbies, I forget his name, 
who used to actually set up a fake stand where he would like sell bananas or I don't think they had bananas in Europe, but you know, they weren't hanging around Costa Rica in those days, but they, but whatever, he was selling potatoes, you know, and he wasn't really there to sell potatoes. He was actually, because he was in a public big open air market, he would, he was able to see the people who no one else could see. And he'd actually walk with him. He would put his arm around the guy. Now, this guy could have been 300 years. No one ever put their arm around him. You know, 300 years, 500 years, who knows how long he's been there in the Kafakeo. But this Rebbe could see them. So, and they would see, people in the, who work in the Shuk there would see this Rebbe going like this, walking down. Walking, just every couple days he'd be walking by like this. So he'd put his arm around the guy. And the guy dead takes a little while to realize someone's got his arm around him, and he looks over at the guy with his arm around like, he can't believe someone's actually interacting with him. And who's he looking at? He's looking at this high-level Kabbalistic, you know, hidden Rebbe. And the Rebbe looks back at him and says to him in this really special voice, I don't remember, my Rebbe said it better, but he said something, he says something like, not something like he says this, but probably in Hebrew or something. But he, he says, you're dead! <laughs> That's what he tells him. He tells him he's dead. And the guy just goes like... <laughs> like through some like substrate of water or something through the realms. <laughs> and then like pops out the other side into the soul world, which is where the souls go which is called the world of souls. And, uh, and so, so that's the other way out. It's either possession or like some high-level Kabbalist. But I don't think, this is the whole problem with our generation. We don't have anyone like this anymore. So like, things so you are... You could have a dead person right here. And What's that? Yeah, you could have a dead person right here, yeah. They're like snuggling up to you right now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this isn't a very crowded place. They they like crowded places. It could be like my class. I've noticed crazy people like my class. <laughs> I've had so many wing nuts in here over the last twenty seven years. Oh my god! No, it's like a couple times a year, someone comes in who's like full schizo, and like suddenly I'm his Rebbe, and oh, I got. Crazy stories of things that happened. I mean, like, oh yeah, I got crazy stories. I'm just such insane stories. Some of them are quite supernatural. Um, I'll tell you my most one of my most supernatural stories ever with one of my schizo uh, students. Surely uh, will like this. Ah, he was just coming in, so he knows this story. He probably hasn't heard it in a few years. Um, so this one guy was, was particularly nuts and violent. And he, um, he, he was like a paranoid schizophrenic. And, uh, and could, you know, he could get very violent. And he was never violent with me. But there were times where he was angry at me and did want to speak things out alone in the dark. And, uh, but, but what would happen is my wife would tell him, okay, you can come over. And then she would have call someone else who would keep an eye on him like a hundred yards away while we walked around, you know, Nachlaot by the Shuk. You know, that, I, I would look back once in a while and see someone way up the street just watching the whole time just to make sure. Anyway, he was quite nuts. But um, what would happen was he also, he liked alcohol. And when he would drink alcohol, he would turn into a dog. But particularly, yeah, a dog, particularly later in his career, he would turn into a dog. And um, when I say a dog, like literally a dog, and bite people like a rabid dog. And so, anyway, there were several different biting events. People had to go to the hospital. It was a whole thing. Like, And, uh, hey, you came perfect time for a story. Remember my student, Yoshua, who would become a dog and bite people? Remember that story? No, you never remember. He's, he's knows. Right, Tati attracts crazy students sometimes? Do I? Yeah, have I attracted one recently? Anyone particularly crazy lately? Yeah. <laughs> the answer is yes. Yeah. <laughs> He's crazy. So, anyway. Anyways. <laughs> anyway, so this guy, later in his years, 
when he would get drunk, he would turn into a dog and would get violent. And at one point, I mean, some, some poor guys were sleeping in their sukkah and he crashed through the wall as a dog. <laughs> and I paid the hospital bill, meaning, meaning Yoshua paid me back. He paid me back, but you know, once he sobered up and took, he took responsibility for it and paid me back for paying for this guy's hospital bill. You know, because he had to get shots and stuff. You know, bit by a dog. So, anyway, um, another point, Purim. Obviously, everyone drinks on Purim. I, mean, I could tell you stories about this guy on Purim, but I'm not gonna, I'll only tell you this one. He dressed up as a dog in Svat on Purim and, and got thrown out of the Rebbe. There's a Rebbe in Svat who's like the Rebbe of Svat. You know, it's Svat, the old city of Svat's all Breslov, and up above Svat's all Chabad. So... So the Rebbe of the Breslovers is Rabbi uh, Kenig, and he, uh, he threw him out for biting people. And he was dressed as a dog, which is totally weird. And then, now he's a dog. He's thrown out of his Rebbe's party. He wasn't really his Rebbe, but now he's walking around the Middlehof, how do you say Middlehof, the foot mall of Svat, biting pedestrians. Now, the police, obviously, it didn't take long for the police to arrest him, and throw him in jail. And, of course, it made it into the newspaper. I don't know. What, what's a newspaper in Svat? They have some kind of little paper. Anyway, someone showed me the article. That's how I found out. Someone's like, is this your student, Yoshua? And uh, I turned out to be his last rabbi because every rabbi he ever had, he bit. Just kidding. Every rabbi he ever had, he messed it up somehow. So I stayed with him from the beginning, meaning I met him on the very first day he came to Aish and stayed with them. I'm very loyal to my students, no matter how crazy they are. Long story short, he dies. Well. That's not funny. <laughs> but it's kind of a funny way to end the story. It's not over, though. Remember, we're talking about souls here. So, In this class, someone dying doesn't mean the story's over. It's only beginning. Yeah, Yeshua dying is only the beginning of the story. So, anyway, he dies. Really weird situation, because what happened was he was very close with his mother, who lived in America, and, and, he, and his sister was a bit of a student of mine. He flew back to see his mother before she passed away. She, was, she had, the, she had the cancer, and she was, she was... He flew back many times since she'd gotten the, that illness, but now she was really dying, so he flew back to say goodbye. The next morning... I get a phone call from his sister saying that she's dead, the mother. And I'm like, I'm like, sorry to hear that. And she says, Yoshua's dead too. Meaning they both died. And here she was in her house with her mother passed away and he died in his sleep that night. Is that weird? Totally weird. There's nothing connection, though. What? There's nothing connection between that. Yeah, except he didn't have anything to die from. It was just really weird. So, um, now, I missed his funeral. Like, the me, I mean, there might have been another rabbi out there who took care of me. I think there might have been one, maybe in Sfat. But, but I was in the air flying to America while his body was being flown to Israel. I was flying to teach, and I wasn't going to not teach a community because he died. So I didn't go to the funeral. I never even knew where he was buried, anything. He was buried in Sfat. But um, about half a year later, we have an open third meal, which you're all invited to. Every week we do a big open third meal, which is Saturday evening. Um, it was about 15 minutes before Shabbos came out, and this Gentile, like six foot two blonde lady, who was like, she looked like she was from Sweden, Norway, I don't know, Finland, I don't know where she looked like she was from, but she definitely looked uh, Scandinavian. She's holding the freakiest looking dog you've ever seen in your life. Skin. The whole dog's skin. Have you ever seen a... <laughs> I think there is actually a breed of dog that doesn't grow hair, but it wasn't this breed. Yeah. It is going to the group spend Yeah. You can go, but you're not coming to yoga if you don't. If you go. Huh? I think they already left. If you really want to go to the tunnels, you can go with the idiot, but you're not going to yoga. Oh, but your bike's here. No, you're, you're going to your... Sorry. You've been in the tunnels, all right? You look a little disappointed. Um, 
You want to leave your bike here? I don't think that's a good idea. <laughs> anyway, the, um, but they do tunnel tour once in a while. So, I mean, it's up to you, but you, tell Yiddy, if he can figure out a way to get your bike home, you guys can come. You can go. So, she's holding this dog that's all skin, like human skin, but it's a dog. And on the belly of the dog is a round patch of hair that would have been the hair of the dog, like had it had hair. So it's an old skin dog with this little round patch of hair here. Now, she said that the dog, like, beelined towards my house during the open third meal, where Yoshua used to always come. And the dog was, like, beelined across Bitsala Street towards my house and got hit by a car. So the dog was dying. I mean, the dog was clearly dying. It had, like, its ribs, like, punched into its lungs. I mean, it was dying. And, and she's holding this dying dog, and she wants to bring it to my house. Now, I'm like, listen, lady, like, Shabbos is out in 15 minutes. We'll call the animal people. They'll come put the dog to sleep, whatever. You know, just sit here. Right, there's stairs right next to my house. Like, sit on these stairs. You want to take care of the dog? Take care of the dog. We went to Mariv to the evening. So by the time I came back, the the truck had already come and they'd taken the dog to the animal services. Later that night, I go to a bar mitzvah um, with my wife. I didn't go in, she went in. I, it was a friend of hers, so I just sat in the parking lot. In another car in that parking lot was another man waiting for his wife in the bar mitzvah. And he, who is this guy? This guy's name's A.Y. Katzoff. And he is a shepherd, a Jewish shepherd who lives on the mountains overlooking, over the Temple Mount, like on the east side by the Mount of Olives. He has a, uh, he has a, a pasture over there where he shepherds sheep. And he is the only place that was willing to let Yoshua stay at his house. So Yoshua used to stay at A.Y.'s house. A.Y.'s family. A.Y. runs up to my window and tells me the following story outside the bar mitzvah Saturday night after Shabbos, where this dog was. A.Y. tells me that he was having a dream that that Yoshua was a dog and he was all skin except for one round patch of hair on its on his belly. And he came to him in his dream, begging to die. Meaning because a human soul in an animal body is not going to be a very fun experience. Animal souls in animal bodies are good. Human souls in animal bodies are not happy about it. It really can be extremely uncomfortable to be a human in an animal. And so he came to him as a dog with all skin, a round patch of hair on his belly, and was begging to be taken out of his misery, like killed. And it was, he said the dream was like crazy intense. And then his wife started shaking him. This is in real life, his wife's shaking him. Why is she shaking him? She's shaking him because, because their Shabbos table, which they for the last six months have put a cloth on and made Shabbos meals and taken it off and cleaned it. And there was a fresh cloth on the table and on the table was a, no, a bank receipt for money Yoshua had deposited for them, for the Katsovs, in America with Yoshua's signature, you know, signing that he deposited the money. There was an actual signed note of a receipt from a bank deposit with Yoshua's name on their Shabbos table. And she was shaking him to wake him up to understand what this is doing on their Shabbos table. Shabbos, you know, afternoon, while he was taking his shluf. He was woken from this nightmare with her saying, what's the meaning of this, of this bank receipt on our Shabbos table? And that part I can't, that I cannot explain. Anyway, the um, story's almost over. I was taking a, a wealthy man on a tour of Israel. Guy learning here, but they, sometimes they ask me to take these guys up north. So I took him up north, and 
we're leaving Svat, we're going to go for dinner in Tiberias. And this is already uh, 11 months later, 11 and a half months after Yoshua died. And we're on our way, we leave Svat down the bottom of Svat, and as we're passing by the cemetery at the bottom of Svat to turn left on the highway, I said to the passenger in the car, because we've got to talk about something, so I said, oh, you know, my, one of my dear students is buried here, and I never got to see where he's buried. And, and he says, well, why don't we go now? And now I'm turning left on the highway, and I'm like, I'm not going to visit my student on your time. And so we're driving out towards Tiberius, and the, this wealthy guy is like, he's like, I don't understand why, you know, if he's your dear student, why you never went to see his grave. And I'm like, well, I don't live in Sfat, and I I've only been here once or twice, and it just hasn't come out. He says, well, why don't we go there now? And I said, because this is your tour. I'm not taking you to visit my student's grave. And he kept going. And after a while, the guy says to me, he says to me, you know, I'm a bit of your student at this point. I don't feel very comfortable being the student of somebody who wouldn't visit his student's grave. <laughs> He's like really pushing me. <laughs> He's really pushing me. And you know, when you turn left towards Sfat, there's a little neighborhood on the right. I think it's an Arab neighborhood. There's a little, no. Whatever. What's that called? Sasa or something? I forget. What it's called. What's it called? Arabah. So, so I turn in there to turn around. And then fine, we'll go. So I, I, I don't even know where the grave is. It's a giant cemetery. Like, how am I going to find it? So I call someone in Sfat who was at the funeral. And he explains where exactly where to go. So we go in there, and it's like raining a bit, and... We go exactly where he told me to go. No, there's no grave there with Yoshua on it. Like, nothing. And we were there for like 15 minutes, 20 minutes, drizzling on us, and it's not there. I've gone up every row of the area where he's buried. It's not there. So, so finally, we, we gave up, so we're leaving. I called him back, by the way, and he's like, I'm telling you it's there. I said, it's not here. So we're leaving now, and just as we get to the car, a pickup truck comes in. I stop the pickup truck and I say, hi, are you part of the Hebra Kadisha, the burial society? He says, yeah. And I said, do you have any idea where Yeshua Abrams is buried? And he says, Yeshua Abrams? And I'm like, yeah, Yeshua Abrams. He's like, Yeshua Abrams? And I'm like, yeah. He's, he doesn't answer me. He gets on the phone, calls this, like, it was like a radio or something. And he's like, he's like, Someone who knows Yeshua Abrams is here. And all of a sudden, like, he says, you wait right here. Like, over the next 10 minutes, like, a bunch of cars come driving up. It's like all the rest of the burial society comes in. And they take me to his grave. His grave is unmarked. No stone. There, you, there was a sign that had already fallen over, meaning a little chalk, like, little piece of chalkboard. You can kind of make out that it said Yoshua Abrams on it, but like, you could, it was illegible. And like, this is his grave. And I'm like, why is it like this? And he says, because the family in America never paid for anything. They didn't pay for the, the, the dealing with the body. They didn't pay for the, the grave. They certainly didn't pay for a tombstone. They didn't pay for any of this. Like, we, we did this funeral and it didn't get paid for. And so we, our law is that if no one pays for it, we don't do anything. We just leave it there. And it's now, you, you understand, by the end of the year, you're supposed to have a tombstone. This is 11 and a half months. And here I am. And I'm like, well, you got the right guy, man, because I know his family very well. And, and, and I said, okay, I'll take care of it. And I made the phone calls to America, and the grandmother stepped up, paid for everything, and he got a tombstone right there. So it was like I got to like, have a part in it in the end which is very interesting, all because of the student, because I would never, ever have turned around. As you saw, I wasn't going to turn around and go, and go get him and go find him. It's amazing, these soul stories, you know. And these are like real ones. These, I mean, they're not just like campfire tales. I got to be involved in these ones. And this one included, a, this one included the possession in a dog. I mean, that's really hard. Yeah, you have a hard job. You just have the bike. Yeah. <laughs> he says, go for the bike. Yeah, right? Like, when I'm on the trails, I should be enjoying it. <laughs> I'm going to call the guy after. 
least try to convince him to let me test it out on the trails. Like, why does why does God do that to, to people? Why does why does that have to happen to me? It's like suffering for a long enough months. Mm. Oh, I don't. I'm not fully like. I don't know. We don't understand. They, we don't ask questions of these things, you know. The, we don't understand any of this. I mean, why do you have to have your life the way your life is? Like, why are you this number kid? Why are you from that house? You could have been, had you been from 100 yards over, 100 yards over to another house and a different number kid, your whole life would have been different. Yeah, you know, purposely... Makes us that number kid important to certain families. Absolutely, so but we, we can, don't know why. We well, don't know. Why. We can fulfill a certain like. Yes, but we don't know what that is. We don't know what anything is. Actually, I, I, this is the first day ever I didn't let the newspaper go into my house. Like I came out, looked at the newspaper, saw there was a, a tragic fire. Kids died in a in a observant community, Baytar, and. Uh, I'm like that's not going in my house. On uh, you know, it's first thing in the morning. It's Rosh Chodesh, and I I I just took it out on my way to the mikveh, chucked it at the mikveh. But uh, that's um, that's not the point. The point is, is that like now these now these parents are going to go to bed tonight, having buried their children, whatever was left of them, you know. How are they supposed to make sense of that? How are we supposed to make sense of anything? And we can't make sense of anything. Why you're born into your house, like, you'll never know. Even when you die, you won't know. Yeah, you think, like, when you die, at least you get to find out. <laughs> you, it could be you find, I mean, you'll definitely know a lot more, but, like, why, 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 why? Like, the real Why? And oh, you don't necessarily get to know, you know, we're, so, we're part of some spiritual thing going on. What? Do you ever eventually find out? I don't know. I mean, in the, my work in hypnosis, when I did past life work with people, they actually, between lives, got to go and ask God after each life, why? And there were answers. So that, lind- first of all, I don't know if they're just making stuff up in their own imagination in hypnosis but um, but it seemed there were answers for people so maybe there are answers maybe you do get to ask why but we're part of something way bigger like than our flesh blood and consciousness there's something way bigger going on for us and we don't understand it necessarily our job is to keep it simple like, what? There's so many different things from what happens when you die. Like, for some you go on the bath, you pass your test, and fill your purpose somewhere. No, first you go to God, and you pass your test. And then, if you're really, really good, then you go to on the bath after that. And then there's like all the. I just yeah, it's, it's more specific. It's much more specific. But, it, but if you want things to stay really simple, what's your name? Abby. Abby, if you want things to be super simple, simply the. It's very simple. You sleep in the bed you made. So however you live your life in your, this world is what you'll, what you'll be dealing with. Meaning, meaning everything you do that's to- towards good will be eternal. Everything you did that was away from good is temporal. It will die with you. Temporal means time limit. It's uh, limited in time. So everything you do good will be eternal. Everything you do towards good is forever. Everything you do away from good is temporal. But even though it's temporal, you do have to own it when you pass away. I don't know what I, what I did in a past life. No, no, this life. No, but how do I know what Wait, let me just explain that a little more and then you ask about past lives. Abby, okay. just let me finish that. Okay. The All of us have to pay for our lives unless God has a really sick sense of humor you understand anyone who does evil I know people who did horrendous things like horrendous things and they're living free lives they're not in jail they should be in jail they're no longer dangerous because they're old and whatever dying but you know they're in their last years but they I have spoken to the victims 
of these people. And these people are free. Never got caught, covered up, community covered, covered things up. And, and they're just, you know, some are very wealthy and enjoying their, they're enjoying their themselves, you know. Now, if, uh, if you have to understand that your life is built of choices, good choice, bad choice, you have choices. Yet we don't see any consequence for either. You could say all the kindness I've done has cost me time and money. So if anything, good was bad for me. Cost me time, cost me money. So maybe good is bad. And then you'll see other things that people have done in bad, and I certainly did plenty of bad things before I found Torah. And they, I didn't, it didn't seem to have any consequence. In fact, I probably profited more than I lost for most of the bad things I did. So unless God has a sick sense of humor, which he may, but I don't think he does, because he gave us, the one thing God gave us in this world was choice towards good or towards or away from it. Yet there's no consequence. And I know many people have profited greatly by doing evil. So there's no real this world consequence. But God gave us choice. So when do you actually take responsibility for your choices? Meaning, do you get paid or you get busted? When does that happen? Well, there's only one obvious place that can happen, and that would be after we die. So you don't need a rabbi to tell you anything, Abby. That's what I'm saying. You don't need a, to hear from rabbis what happens when you die. It's enough logically to understand that the one thing you've got in this world is choice. That's the one thing you've got. You've got free will. And you'll make your choices. There, the consequences of those choices will not be obvious. Meaning you will not necessarily get rewarded for doing good or punished for doing bad in this world. One sec, but when we die, now the soul releases from the body, the body goes six feet under, and the soul now goes up and takes responsibility for the negative choices, which I said were temporal, they're time-bound, meaning we take responsibility for them. Once we're finished taking responsibility for the negative choices, then all the good we did was eternity. We get eternity for all the good we did. Now, what that eternity is made of, we have no idea. That's why we don't give afterlife classes. You notice there's no class on the schedule about the afterlife because we don't know what it is. We don't know what good you get. But we do know one thing that's important, and that is that, have you ever felt totally connected before? Yeah, you've ever felt totally connected? Would you say that was one of the highlights of your life? I don't know what I mean. I know what I would mean for me. But I would say definitely my best times in my life where I felt totally connected. To God. God, to my wife, to my children, to a good friend, to just those moments of ultimate connection were the greatest moments in my life. They're, they're, they are ultimately what we seek. Unfortunately, especially for men, <laughs> connection is too dangerous for us, so we go for ego and like recognition. We love recognition. So, like, we want to drive a nice car, and we want to have a nice suit, we want to have a big job, and we, we want to be recognized, which is the counterfeit of connection. You understand that, that um, and women do it too. They don't do it so much for, for uh, recognition. They do it more for um, uh, uh, attention. Women do it more for attention. Men do too. Men and women, they both go for attention over connection. Because connection's dangerous. Yeah, I mean, think about it. How are you supposed to connect to anyone without putting your heart literally on, at risk? So attention's the next best. It feels a little bit like love. feels a little bit like connection when people are giving you a lot of attention, even negative attention. But it's the counterfeit of love. And it often happens with people who've been hurt before. People who've been hurt before will generally go for attention. It's the counterfeit of love. And... It's, uh, but it's a very cheap counterfeit and it leaves you miserable in the end because, I mean, is it, could you ever get enough attention? Do the people in Hollywood ever get enough? How come they don't live past 40? You know, like, they just, they just can't survive the pain of, what's the pain? The pain is after all the attention they got. And three in the morning, everyone's gone home. Like, people are going to sleep that night. 
They're not clapping for you. I mean, you'd think those, those rock stars have enough money to hire someone to keep clapping while they sleep in their hotel room, you know, in New Jersey. Like, they're playing Jersey this week. So instead of dying of an overdose of sleeping pills and stuff because they can't fall asleep from the pain, they could just spend some money to have people clap while they're sleeping. Just have people in the hotel room just sitting there going, you're amazing, we love you. Oh, we just love Michael Jackson. You know, like, just have people clap for you while you're sleeping. They could have afforded that. You know, instead of choking on their own vomit by themselves in a hotel room. You know, waking up dead. So, the... Um, Anyway, but we all have to realize that it's love that we want, it's connection that we want. That's where that's what you want to go after, and and just forget attention. Attention. You know what I think about when I see people are going for attention because they're often like bronze and tan and like <laughs> driving the Alfa Romeo or some other Italian car, and they like they just look so good. And these attention people, you know what I see when I see attention people? Everyone else sees like glamour. You know what I see? I see an Ethiopian with like the distended belly and the swollen skull and the, you know, the eyes popping out flies and toothpick arms. And they're like, like I see a starving Ethiopian when I see these glamor people who are all into like their attention and stuff. That's all I see. My heart, my heart goes out. And obviously negative attention's a disaster because like, Maybe if I'm depressed enough and like slice my arm enough times or something like, maybe then I'll feel something connected because people are gonna come save me or something. You know, like, oh, you know, like, you know, the, the best is in a joke form is um, is uh, is I'm gonna really show my parents by being miserable. <laughs> That'll be cool. Except it's not cool. It's miserable. miserable. <laughs> Understand? Show your parents by being the most miserable person they ever saw. Makes means you lose. You lose. It means you were miserable. So what good did that do? So in other words, if the counterfeit for attention, sorry, if the counterfeit for loving connection is attention, whether it be glamour or wealth or or negative attention by being like the dregs of the earth, depressed, angry, you know, whatever person if that's the counterfeit so just get that and go for loving connection become loving connection and you can even have a hippie stage which is always fun for like you got a bit of a hippie thing going on over there so you can do like hippie for like half a year to a year it's great like just go the opposite way like just be like hand flowers to people in the Jewish quarter or something you know just become like love Go, meaning go, the Rambam teaches us this, is just go way to the opposite and then you'll slide back to the middle. But someone who's been going for the big attention thing should go for the hardcore into love. And, and when I talk about love, I'm talking about expressions of love and connection. I'm not talking about anything intimate because that's just more disaster of attention. And then that's just physical attention. So I'm talking about just being a loving person and go really into that. Yeah, and it's fine to have a whole hippie stage. You ever had a whole hippie stage? Not a whole. Not a whole. <laughs> anyway, go for the full hippie thing for a little while and just be the most loving person anyone ever met until people are like almost starting to avoid you because it's like awkward. <laughs> and, then, uh, and then you'll come back to like just being a normal person because normal people don't do that. Our job usually when it comes to love is to measure the recipient to see how much is appropriate. But a hippie does not do any measurements. You know, they're just like, they're going to love everybody all the way. You know, like, like there's no measuring the recipient. But normal human beings actually look at the potential recipient and, and act accordingly. Like, like, meaning I'm loving with all you people, but like the men are going to get more than the women, you know, because... It's just not appropriate. So the recipient's not an appropriate place for me to be extra loving, but by the men, okay. That's cool, unless you're gay. <laughs> Which point I'll, I'll, be, I'll be very loving, but not as loving. <laughs> because I don't want to cause any, you know, 
any extra fantasies. <laughs> Why not? The fantasy of the Hasidic rabbi. You know. <laughs> this is getting really weird. Now... <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> um, we're way off topic right now. We're talking about <laughs> we're talking about love and attention, but I always wrap up my class, so I got to think how to wrap this up, uh, especially with the yoga approaching. Um, what was today's topic? We were talking about the parallel worlds. We we're talking about souls and reincarnation, possessions, both human and animal. Uh, how to stay out of the kafkala means you can't kill yourself. Um, uh, Is that the only way of getting it? To the kafkala? Yeah. No, I think there are more ways, but I don't know what they are. And uh, I think they're, they're, the list of things is not very long, but I think it's, I think it's uh, pretty harsh. Like, you have to do some pretty stupid stuff to wind up in the kafkala. And... Uh, yeah, I think we nailed this class. I don't, I don't know what else to say. Any, any random questions? Can you do something that you know someone that committed suicide would like to help them? Someone who committed suicide to help them? Uh-huh. Um, maybe to try to find a Kabbalist who can do something. That'd probably be the best. Not much you can do. Um, if you were super close with him, he might come around once in a while, so... Try to sense him, you could talk to him. Um, if you sense him, you could talk to him. But I mean, you'd have to be really close to sense him. You know? Also, you have to be really close for him to even bother coming around you, because there's a lot of interesting things going on. They're probably hanging around Burning Man, and you know, like, they like being around a lot of people, not just you, you know, so. But if you were super close to them, it could be they'd come around. I believe they would come around to someone they were really close with, yeah. If they attempts and are someone intervenes to save them and then they die, they don't go to Kafakela. Yeah, Kafakela is kind of reserved for no regrets. You know, meaning, meaning like, what's a no regrets? A gun. Someone who kills themselves with a gun, it's boom, they're dead. So it's point blank with a gun. There's, there was never a moment of regret. So whereas there's other types of situation where, like, for example, pills... And now they're trying to save him. And now he's like, what have I done? And, you know, like that whole thing is like, that's a chance. But, but if they wind up dying without re- full-on regret, but if they're the ones who called for help, that's clearly, show, clearly showing that they, there's regret. And regret's tshuva. tshuva tsh- regret's the third step of tshuva. Stop, say, regret, commit to the future. So if they're calling someone for help, having eaten pills or whatever, uh, that's a clear sign they're in the chuva process. It's chuva. Nothing stands before chuva. So they did chuva. The, um, and uh, we, often rabbis for the families of, the, of those who, who died through suicide, often the rabbis will tell the family to still sit shiva and still say kaddish. But they're more thinking about the family because the letter of the law is there's no kaddish. Because Kaddish is for helping someone's soul to move up and up and up, but it doesn't help someone in the Kafakel. Kaddish doesn't do anything for someone in the Kafakel. So, but they'll often tell them, and when they ask the rabbis why are they allowed to say Kaddish for someone who isn't really gone, meaning they're in the parallel realm right next to ours, so why say Kaddish for that person? So they say, well, perhaps they had regret. Perhaps they regretted it, but it was too late. There was nothing they could do. I mean, if they, it's unknown, if it's unknown, mm-hmm. so that's between that's only God would know. No, I'm saying like, like if for Kaddish. Yeah. Oh, if it was unknown, they're always more lenient on saying Kaddish. Mm-hmm. Rabbis are always more lenient on that and Shiva, so that the par- family can mourn properly. So a very random question: um, Is there any like, um, like sign of getting burns if you get burned? <laughs> Goliath will just keep getting burned. Oh, someone just keeps getting burned? Like, like people who are living in like a scene building, like, 
Because we were in a dormitory and like other people are getting burned. Girls got burned. Randomly. Yeah, like I fell on a stove and they were really bad. Really you bad. fell on a stove, <laughs> like a stove top. So like our outlets broke on our in our kitchen, so we had to put the stove on the floor. <laughs> oh my god. You go to the hospital? <laughs> no, I didn't want to. She didn't want to. I didn't realize that's part of the equation of wanting to or not wanting to. <laughs> I just didn't think I needed to. And everyone was like, you should go home. Like, I shouldn't play this. I'm not okay, dying. Well, you should keep it out of the sun and keep aloe yeah, and stuff like that. Yeah. And anti, also uh, anti infection. What do you call that? Antibiotic. So it didn't get infected. Like, but my teacher gave me like a spiritual cabalistic reason why, but I kind of forgot what she said. I don't know why random people, including <laughs> you, are getting burned lately. Any other random questions? We're good? Good. Okay. okay, everyone. And that was today's class. We'll see y'all tomorrow. And you're reminding me of the oil. Right. We're going to burn some, uh, some temple smells oh, tomorrow. I forgot. It wasn't like the first thing on my mind. I was running out of the house. Show them everyone. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.